I've entitled this morning's message, Our Identity Within the Perfect Law of Liberty. This morning, I want to talk to you about finding the power of our identity within the perfect law of liberty. The phrase, the perfect law of liberty, is found only in the book of James. In James chapter 1, verse 25, I have it in the King James, it says this, For whoso looketh into the perfect law of liberty, and continueth therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So what exactly is this law of liberty, and what does it have to do with our identity? Well, my goal this morning is to try to answer those questions. <laughs> but before we get to that verse, I want to begin again, and actually verse 1 of chapter 1. James 1, chapter 1, I have it in the Young's Literal Translation. James, of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, a servant, to the twelve tribes who are in the dispersion, hail. The Word of God very often surprises me. You start digging around and you find stuff. <laughs> and even if it isn't a new thing, it can speak to you in a new way. This verse it was that for me. It's easy when we start to study a letter that we just zoom right past the opening. <laughs> that's just the addressee and who wrote it. But that's not important, right? Maybe not. <laughs> but actually, this opening is so much more than James saying, this is who wrote it and this is who I'm sending it to. It's more than that. It's actually James declaring his revelation of who God really is to him and who Jesus really is to him and then who he himself has really become. The first verse reveals James's new understanding of the true identity of Jesus. James and the rest of the family thought Jesus was a nut. <laughs> and scholars say they really don't think James came to faith in Christ until Christ came walking home after he had been risen from the dead. That was a revelation. <laughs> You're not just my big brother who's out of his mind. You are exactly who you said you are. That was a revelation. Not only was this a revelation, but it was the same revelation that John the Apostle wrote in John 1.1. That in the beginning, the Word, the Logos, Jesus. He was in the beginning, and the Word, the Logos, Jesus, was with God, and the Word, the Logos, Jesus, was God. This one, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. This is the same revelation the other apostles received. And we don't hear this. I mean, John was written 40 years after Christ was risen from the dead. So there was a lot of learning between when Christ rose from the dead and what are we doing with this thing called Christianity? What is it all about? Yes, it's about Christ, but what else? <laughs> it was first and foremost coming to the revelation of who God is in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is equal with God. And that's why I like the Young's literal in this particular verse, because it, he puts God and Jesus equal. God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. He is a servant of both. The King James says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, making it sound like maybe Jesus isn't <laughs> equal, but the way he actually wrote it and said it, that's exactly what he was trying to convey that Jesus isn't just his big brother, Jesus is God. In this revelation of who Jesus is and who God was, and you have to remember, he was a Jew. And James, his name was actually Jacob. I don't know why they changed it to James in English, but 
He was a very religious man. He was like the Pharisees. We follow the law in every which way we can. That was his identity. He was a Jew and he was a good Jew. <laughs> and good Jews don't run after fake messiahs. <laughs> this is the revelation that he woke up to, that I'm no longer just a Jew. And the God I've always worshiped is so much more than I ever thought he was. <laughs> this was a revelation of the Trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Jews believed there was one true God, and that's what they always said, one true God. We believe in the one true God, but he didn't know the one true God. He knew how the one true God was revealed in the Old Testament, but this was all brand new. <laughs> and part of this identity, he says, I am a servant. And the word there is bond servant, slave. A bond slave was someone who was purchased out of the slave market by someone paying the necessary equivalent in value. I love that. The equivalent value to God, because he's the one that places value. He says, you and you and you and you, you're all worth dying for. You're all worth it to God. <laughs> to go through everything he did, he said, that's the equivalent, my son, for you. So the necessary equivalent was agreed to in those days by the purchaser and the owner. Whoever owned the slave got to say what the price was. <laughs> Together, they would decide and agree on the price of that slave. In our case, both the purchaser and the owner was God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And mankind was the slave. So God in his fullness decided that mankind was worth paying the price of our sin debt in order for us to go free, completely free. Mankind was a slave to the power of sin and death. And the only way for a man to be able to escape the power of sin and death was for a God-man to come and carry all of our sin, the sin of the, all of mankind, on their behalf and take it into death. Sin, when it goes into death, becomes powerless. It has no ability to condemn. It has no ability to control. It's dead. Then for that God-man to rise from the dead in the newness of life and to offer that new kind of God life to all those who will believe. And that's all that we have to do in order to receive all that Jesus has done on our behalf is believe. We need to believe that Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. That's the picture of buying somebody out of the slave market. We need to believe that he has purchased us and all of mankind out of the slave market of sin. In those days when a slave was on the auction block, they were usually naked. So you would know exactly what you were purchasing. <laughs> and what did Jesus do? He took our place and he was naked and nailed to a cross because he represented us and all of our inability to save ourselves. <laughs> but that's the value. See, a kinsman redeemer says, you belong in my family, <laughs> and I'm going to buy you out of the mess you got yourself in. Not only did he remove the power of sin and death, but he also removed the hard taskmaster of the law. And in its place, our Father gave us the Holy Spirit, who ministers a new law in us. The law of the spirit of life 
in Christ Jesus. It's a law. <laughs> it's unchangeable like gravity. God says the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has canceled, made null, made void, the power of sin and death in a believer's life. No matter what you do, no matter how stupid we are, <laughs> we never spiritually die again. Sin and death has no power over a believer. The newness of life is the eternal freedom from this law of sin and death. In the Old Covenant, that's what God was dealing with, the power of sin and death. That's why they always had to bring a lamb. If you sin, the result is going to be death. So instead of you dying, let's get a little lammy in here so that you can continue to live. They were trying to get out from underneath the power of the law of sin and death. They didn't want sin and death in their life. For them, it was about physical life. It was about being blessed and not being cursed. <laughs> we can never again be cursed because we have a different law. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The law of sin and death no longer has dominion in a believer. So instead of the law, this is where a new covenant Christians often get themselves into trouble, is they receive Jesus, but they don't understand that they're not under that law. Not the spiritual law and not the Mosaic law. Mosaic law was to try to contain the results of sin in their lives. They couldn't have what we have. That's why it doesn't work when you try to mix them. <laughs> because you're actually mixing life with death. And it doesn't work. So the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus is a law and it's unchangeable. We are no longer under the law of sin and death. Sin is no longer our master. And we are no longer its slave. And death, which is actually separation from God, that's how God describes death. Being separated from him and his blessing, him and his presence, him and his life. Death is simply the absence of God. <laughs> God is life. So if we don't have God, we don't have life. And we understand that life to be the kind and quality of eternal life, just like God. So we no longer are under the dominion of sin and death because we have received the very life of God. Death can no longer threaten us, I love this, with the removal of God's presence because his presence, his spirit has been fused together with our new spirit and we are one in the spirit with the Lord. For years, I was taught Holy Spirit's like a little dove on your shoulder here. And if you, oh, if you chew gum in church, oh, do you remember those rules? <laughs> Don't chew gum in church, you'll make the Holy Spirit leave. You'll offend him. So you had to be very careful about how you walked because if you walked incorrectly, the dove would leave you. Now that is nowhere in the scripture. <laughs> but a lot of the church was taught that very same thing, that the power of sin and death still has the ability to remove God's presence from you. God doesn't ever leave us. The more stupid we are, the more he knows we need him. <laughs> okay, we will never get out of the power of sin by ourselves. We will never be able to change ourselves without him. He's not going to leave us when we're a mess. He's not going to leave us ever. Our spirit, I love this picture, is fused together. Fused means two things become one and they aren't separatable. They become one. <laughs> we are no longer separatable from God. 
Romans 8, 2 says, For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now that's, that's the presence and power of sin and its ability to destroy and keep you dead and separated from God. <laughs> but there's a law that trumps that law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. We never have to worry about God leaving us because we fall short of his perfection in our natural man. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> For years, because I was afraid of offending the Holy Spirit, because I didn't understand that I was eternally forgiven, because of all of these things, I was always trying to become what Jesus wanted me to be. That's a very hard way to live because I was trying to control God. <laughs> I was trying to make him stay. I was trying to control whether or not he was with me. I don't have any control over that. Once he comes in, I'm fused to him, and then he is stuck with me. <laughs> he is stuck with me wherever I go. He is stuck to me wherever I go. Because his law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, trumps the law of sin and death. Now the Jews, like James, understood what it was like to live under the constant power of sin and death and under the constant demands of the old covenant. The old covenant law could only ever pronounce them guilty and worthy of death. The law never said, oh, you're perfectly innocent in my sight. No, it says, let's go over to this list and see how far you fall short. <laughs> and then we'll decide what kind of sacrifice you need to bring. So the Jews always had that trying to be perfect. Let's face it, Jews, a lot of them were very faithful. They were trying to walk the chalk. They were trying to do everything right. They were trying to be pleasing to God because that was their covenant. But they were always under the power of sin and death. And there was no way out except the blood of a lamb. <laughs> so as a Jew, if you were living honestly before God, you knew that you could never achieve perfect obedience. And therefore, you were always in need of yet another sacrificial lamb. And this is really where the Pharisees fell into their own trap, thinking they were perfect. <laughs> Years ago, I had a young man who said, I'm going to go to heaven. I said, what makes you think you're going to go to heaven? I'm a good person. Okay. I said, what is your definition of a good person? I keep the Ten Commandments. I said, really? All of them? Yeah. Okay. What's the first one? Um, <laughs> if you don't know what they are, how do you know you're keeping them? <laughs> Let me tell you, you cannot keep the first commandment all by yourself. I'm like, what are you talking about? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of thy heart. <laughs> all. <laughs> Only God knows all. <laughs> we don't know all. We're always trying to do better. <laughs> you can't do it. That was the point. That was exactly the point. And of course, that's what self-righteousness does, is it tells us we're perfect, even when we're not. <laughs> Unfortunately, many believers today continue to live under the same taskmaster, Mr. Law. And of course, they too constantly find themselves guilty of falling short of perfection and perfect obedience. And then they beat themselves up for days, and then they beg God over and over and over again to forgive them, all in an effort to make themselves approvable to God when in fact, they never left their position of favor or approval. They didn't realize that sin no longer could separate them. We don't 
always understand. Old habits <laughs> come back. When you go to pray for somebody, it's like there's that habit that, God, if I do this, will you do that? God doesn't bargain. <laughs> he says, no, I will not let you bargain for your blessing. I will not let you bargain or plead and beg for your forgiveness. It's not of what you do. It's of, completely of my grace and gift. I give you forgiveness. Regardless if you're sorry or not. <laughs> because sin in our life will eventually make us sorry. <laughs> But God doesn't keep himself or his life or his love away from us or his spirit away from us because we are acting in our flesh. What I find a lot in the church at large is that believers are not living in the freedoms that Jesus has provided. Instead, they try to keep the old covenant law as a means of either making or keeping themselves right with God. And then they believe that when they do sin, death, the same old law, which is separation from God, still takes place. I used to beg and beg and beg, please don't leave me, please don't leave me, please don't leave me, God, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I hated living that way. I hated sin, but I also hated the fact that I couldn't get my father's blessing. I always thought I had to earn it with being good. That's like saying my child children have to earn my love. You be good and I'll love you. No, we love our kids no matter how rotten they are. <laughs> They're ours and we want to bless them and do them good all the days of our life. That's what our father is like. He's not treating us like old covenant Jews. So even when we sin, even when we fall short, that doesn't cause us to be separated from God but a lot of the church still believes that it does. And it keeps believers afraid that they're going to lose their place in eternity. When in fact, God says it's a gift and it's irrevocable. <laughs> it's non-returnable. <laughs> it's a forever gift. The law of sin and death is when Adam and Eve believed the lie. When they believed the lie that God was not all good, that he was keeping things from them, they believed the lie, and they acted against the truth. They fell. Many in the church, in the free grace, what we would call a free grace kind of teaching, that teach that there was never any separation from Adam and Eve, that they never were separated from God. Because Christ was going to be killed on our behalf, that God saw that from the beginning, so they say that the separation never actually happened that it was all in their head, it was all in their mind. And it's like, how do you get that? The New Testament clearly says that we, because of sin, have been separated from God. And in order to get back to God, to be reunited and fused to him, it is through the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. It is by faith that we enter into what Christ has done. Where there was a real separation, they fell under the power of darkness, under the power of deception. And Satan had a heyday, and so did sin. But Jesus came to redeem us out of that darkness and out of that separation. Now, God never left them. God never left them. Even when he kicked them out of the garden, he went with them. <laughs> he never left them. 
He was never mad at them. He knew that this was happening. He wanted them to know that it doesn't matter what you do, I go with you. So Adam and Eve didn't die physically right then and there. It took not quite a thousand years. <laughs> but the power of sin that brings death was real. And it is real. And people today are still living under the power of sin and death when they could be living in and through the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Death is simply the absence of the life of God within us. And if we have received Jesus, we will never be under the power of death again. That is why when we unzip this earth suit, it's not called death. It's called translation. <laughs> it's called we step out of one realm and into the realer one that we can't see when we're here. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says this. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That deadness was the separation from the very life of God. And in Christ he has made us alive by fusing us together, making us one with Jesus. We are now under the new covenant of grace and freedom. Praise God. <laughs> and in Christ we can never be separated, never be separated from God again no matter how stupid we can be. So when James reveals his new identity, he calls himself a bondservant, a slave. And James isn't the only one who used this very same revelation and took on the very same identity. James was the first book. So James was the first one to be able to say, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ and the Lord, God Almighty. <laughs> Paul and Timothy did it, Simon Peter did it, and Jude did it. Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a servant, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. Philippians 1.1. Paul and Timothy, the servants, the bondservants of Jesus Christ to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi. Peter, 2 Peter 1.1. Simon Peter, a servant, a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And then Jude 1.1. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Even here, we see Jude, who is also Jesus' brother, <laughs> biologically. He doesn't identify himself in the flesh as being related to Jesus. He says, I have a brand new identity. I am a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see that before they identified themselves by what they were called to do, which we usually do. Hi, I'm so-and-so. I'm a dentist. I am what I do. I'm a salesman. I am what I do. I'm a doctor. I am what I do. This is natural thinking that I am what I do. To our modern ears, the idea of being a bondservant <laughs> doesn't sound very appealing <laughs> because of all the, especially lately with all the ruckus about slavery. But being a bondservant at that time was actually a very good thing, especially if you had a good master. The bondservant was a permanent position. It wasn't a hired position. It was one I bought you out of the slave market. You're now my possession. I own you. And I'm going to keep you and take care of you all the days of your life. <laughs> you never have to look for another job. <laughs> you might not even have to look for a spouse. I might have one for you. <laughs> this was a really good economic decision. They didn't have jobs like they do today in factories and all that. No, if you had a good master who had land and property, and he took the responsibility of making you his, 
It was his responsibility to take care of you all of your life. When I looked online for a good description of a bond servant, I found that Christian resources usually emphasized the commitment, devotion, and obligation of the servant, not the master. Now, who owns who? <laughs> I don't own the master, but as a bondservant, my responsibility was to make the master happy. Okay? Everything else was the master's responsibility. But when I looked at Christian resources, they always wanted to emphasize that we, as bond servants of the Lord Jesus Christ, are called to give up our life. <laughs> huh? <laughs> what? You're calling me to give up my life of sin and misery? Oh yeah, that's just so hard. <laughs> no, I am not giving up my life. I'm gaining his life. I don't need my old life. I don't need my old man. I don't need to be separated from God. I get to have all of the goodness of the master. I'm not losing anything. <laughs> this is what I find frustrating about religion. Is <laughs> when we add religion to Jesus, it makes him mean. <laughs> it makes him demanding. It makes him a hard taskmaster. You do X, Y, and Z. You show me you're devoted and I'll bless you. You show me that you're committed and then I'll bless you. You show me and I will treat you based on you. That's not the gospel. God treats us like he treats Jesus. He doesn't treat us like slaves. He treats us like sons. But he did first purchase us out of the market of sin and death. We were going nowhere quick. <laughs> so the emphasis in this kind of relationship, even when using our relationship with Christ as the example, they always wanted to emphasize your devotion, your holiness. You do this, you do this, you do this. Instead of, no, 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 the master gives me my holiness. The master gives me the robe of righteousness. The master gives me the ring that has all power and authority. The master gives me everything I need and want so that I can work with him and for him. Yes, we are bond servants, but he gives us everything we need to be in his realm in his power, in his glory, in his presence, and making a difference in the world. Yes, we do serve, but not in order to be blessed, not in order to keep God with us, <laughs> but because he's already with us. The emphasis really should be on the goodness of the master, especially when it's related to Jesus. <laughs> it's Jesus' sacrifice that sets us free not ours. It's Jesus's faithfulness and devotion to us. I love that. He's devoted to us. We're not just property. <laughs> he's devoted to us and he's devoted to keeping his covenant with us. It's his devotion and his love, not ours. It's Jesus's obligation. Jesus has an obligation to you. That sounds funny to our ear. But see, God says he obligates himself to his word. That's good for us to know. God says, you keep me according to my word. Understand who I am according to my word. Walk in according to what my word says. Yes, I am obligated to fulfill my word. <laughs> That's the only obligation involved in this transaction. It's his obligation. 
to do us good. <laughs> and when we understand this, these are the things that bring us peace and rest. Our obligation, our devotion, our sacrifices don't earn anything. Now, can we still sacrifice for Jesus? Sure. <laughs> you can consider it that way if you want to. <laughs> can I sow my time? Can I love my neighbor? Can I send missionaries to Haiti? Yeah, can I do things through this physical body to answer that desire? You see, when you love Jesus, you want to give him everything. <laughs> You're like, you can have it all, Jesus. <laughs> Whatever you want, that's what I want too. So God doesn't want us to feel obligated to him for all that he's done. That sounds funny too. Have you ever heard the one that says, he died for you, the least you can do is live for him. <laughs> no, he doesn't want us living for him. He wants us to live in him. Big difference. One is self-effort, one is grace. Empowerment, power. That's a big difference. <laughs> he doesn't want us to feel obligated. He wants us to know in our heart the gratitude, the response that comes when we see the value of what he's done for us. Because that's what happens is we become thankful. Thank you I don't have that old man in my life. Thank you, Jesus, that sin is not my master. Thank you, Jesus, it doesn't matter what's going on in the natural. Your word, you are obligated to your word, and you are obligated to me because I'm yours. <laughs> I am your child, and you are my father, and you are a good, good father. The master in this bondman relationship provided the appropriate price to purchase the slave and release him from all his obligations to other masters. I really like that. <laughs> I have no obligation to sin, no obligation to my flesh. I don't have to live under any other power other than the power and presence of God. That's what our Jesus did. He paid our sin debt so that sin and death could no longer be Lord over us. We are already free from the power of the sin and death. There's no more separation from the presence and life of God. Sin and death has been defeated by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. The master also promised to provide their bond slave with lifelong security and provision. <laughs> you never had to worry about tomorrow. The master had everything in hand. Their every need was taken care of by the master. And this is what Jesus has done for us. He has taken the responsibility to minister life and life more abundantly to us and through us all the days of our life. If a bondservant had a gracious, wise, gentle, and very, very rich master who loved him and honored him, why would he ever leave? He wouldn't, <laughs> unless he was really stupid. <laughs> In fact, no one would be able to talk that bondservant out of leaving the freedom of being a bondservant to their awesome master. Because of grace and the goodness of the master, the bondservant would gladly serve his master out of gratitude, love, and respect, not out of obligation. And so it is with us. When we realize our true identity in Christ, that we are already truly free from all other masters, we can find true rest for our souls. We can see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
in this passage. The Apostle Paul is giving practical advice for new believers regarding some of the issues of life, such as marriage, being single, divorce. And one of the questions he fields is about the using our new creation identity as a reason to leave either one's spouse or one's master. <laughs> They're like, okay, I believe in Jesus and my husband doesn't. That mean I can leave? <laughs> no. <laughs> Beginning verse 17. May all believers continue to live the wonderful lives God has planned, God has called them to live according to what he assigns for each person. For this is what I teach the believers everywhere. If you were called to follow Jesus, you were circumcised, it would be futile to try to undo the circumcision. And if you were called while yet uncircumcised, there is no need to be circumcised. The only thing that makes us right in God's sight is the blood of Jesus. Circumcision does not qualify us as righteous, and uncircumcision doesn't disqualify us from our righteousness. Your identity before God has nothing to do with circumcision. In other words, keeping religious laws. And the uncircumcision, not keeping the religious laws, <laughs> doesn't matter. What really matters is following God's commandments. This is not the Ten Commandments. This is not the 613 rules and regulations. This is the word intole, authoritative prescriptions <laughs> given to us by the Holy Spirit. He's not telling people how to get saved from their sins in this passage. He's trying to persuade them of their identity as children of God apart from religious works. And then he's giving them practical advice on how to live. How do we live? It's real easy. Follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and fulfill the authoritative prescriptions he gives to you. He's not talking about rules and regulations. He's talking about this living relationship. Verse 20, so everyone should continue to live faithful in the situation of life in which they were called to follow Jesus. Were you a slave when you heard the call to follow Jesus? Don't let that concern you. Even if you gain your freedom, make the most of the opportunity. For truly, if you are called to a life union with the Lord, you are already a free man. And those who were called to follow Jesus when they were free are now Messiah's slaves, bondservants. They recognize that it's all about Jesus and not about us. It's so easy in these days to try to be what somebody else wants you to be. <laughs> to be what your spouse wants you to be, to be what your parents want you to be, to be what somebody other than Jesus wants you to be. Don't let someone talk you out of who you are, your true identity. You are a child of the living God and you are filled and crammed full of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, he's telling them, do whatever the Messiah leads you to do. The funny thing about slaves is that God adopts those he has purchased out of the slave market of sin and released from the taskmaster of the law. And he gives them a new identity as a full-grown adult son with all the rights and privileges to his father's kingdom, just like Jesus. Romans 8.15 in the Passion Translation says this, And you did not receive the spirit of religious duty, that cracks me up. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I used to have one of those. <laughs> you did not receive the spirit of religious duty, leading you back into fear of never being good enough. 
Every human being I've ever met has had the fear of not being good enough. Not just with God, but about who they are in and of themselves. It is that idea that we need to be something other than who God has created us to be in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. But you have received the spirit of full acceptance, enfolding you into the very family of God, and you will never feel orphaned. For as he rises up within us, our spirits join him in saying the words of tender affection, Beloved Father, Abba, Father. In Christ, we are made good enough. In Christ, we are made good enough. This is a concept that most believers today are comfortable with hearing, but only in a distant sort of way. They don't necessarily think of God in an up-close and personal way, of God the Father living in them. Many believers tend to think of Father God as living far away in heaven. And yes, he does live in heaven, but that's not the only place he lives. (laughs) By the Holy Spirit, he also lives inside of us. And we have been born of our Heavenly Father. That's where we need to get our identity. He has made us good enough. He has given us talents and callings for this life and gifts of the Spirit. It's all about him. For James to come to the conclusion that God is his spiritual father was huge. The Jews never called God father. The word father in reference to God is used once in the Old Testament. They would never have approached God and called him father or daddy or papa God or anything that was endearing because God was far away and he needed to be respected. They didn't have the concept that God wanted to be up close and personal. For James to have this revelation as a Jew was huge. Calling God father would have been way too familiar for them. And actually, Mark often gets responses from people who have a religious spirit. (laughs) How dare you call God Father? How dare you call him Daddy? Who do you think you are? One of his kids. (laughs) Don't you call your dad, your earthly dad, Dad or Papa or something? Well, yeah, because that's an intimate relationship. You don't have that relationship with everybody. It is appropriate to call God whatever endearing name you have for him. Years ago, I was studying all the different names of God, and God, God, what's your favorite? (laughs) You've got so many. Which one is your favorite? And he said, Papa. Papa God. Isn't that true for us, too, as parents? What's our favorite name? Mama. Daddy, (laughs) I don't want my kids calling me Mrs. Testerman. (laughs) They only have one mama. (laughs) They only have one daddy. (laughs) That name is important. It's all about relationship. And this calling God his father is one of the reasons the Jews wanted to kill Jesus. How dare you make yourself equal with God? But James understood the reality of being a born-again son, being born of God, being made in his image, just like Jesus, and having a whole new life and a whole new identity as a son of God. That only comes by revelation. In James chapter 1, 17, it says this, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. 
Imagine this. This is a Jew saying this. <laughs> the father of lights in whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. What? You changed the whole covenant? <laughs> he was saying there's no darkness. There's no trickery. There's nothing in Christ or in the father that is not good. And he continues on. Of his own will, the will of the father, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Every good gift and every perfect gift. What are these gifts? The gift of salvation, the gift of Jesus himself, the gift of the Holy Spirit and all of his spiritual gifts, and the gift of a brand new spirit and a gift of eternal life. This is interesting too. James was probably there at Pentecost because Jesus had visited him, revealed himself to him, and what happens on the day of Pentecost? The Father of Lights pours out all these great gifts. <laughs> so even though this is the very first book written for us, if we know how to see into it, we can see what he actually sees. We can see that he experienced all the things that God wants us to experience. I have often heard ministers over the years say that they didn't think James really understood grace, at least not like the Apostle Paul. <laughs> Theologians like Martin Luther actually wanted to throw this letter out of the Bible because they didn't think James really got it. Grace through faith. But I think that James totally understands grace. And he also understands how grace infuriates <laughs> those who want believers to keep the old covenant law as a means of completing their salvation. In the early days of the church, they thought of salvation as Jesus plus Moses and the law. <laughs> so remember, they're Jews. We have all this 2020 vision. <laughs> they didn't have that. <laughs> so when those who accepted Christ as the Messiah, they had no idea God was going to change the covenants, even though the Old Testament said he was going to. They didn't really think he was going to. <laughs> he was going to do something, going to make it a new covenant in an old-fashioned kind of way. So the belief that we were saved by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, was often met with angry zealots, <laughs> Jewish zealots, throwing rocks at people's heads, <laughs> which is why I think James really begins to speak about the wrath of man in the next verse. Because he understands how people get angry about eternal security, that it is all of grace and it's all of faith, nothing added. If you talk to someone like me 20 years ago, I would have fought you on it. <laughs> sorry, if you think you're getting into heaven and acting a mess, uh, sorry, no, you're not. Because it's Jesus and obedience. That's an old covenant idea. God's idea is better. I'll give you my life, and then you can walk out my life. And it looks like what we call obedience. Walking by faith is what Christians call obedience. As we read the next few verses, I think the, of the media. I want you to think of the media and how the left political party treats the right political party. You see, political identity <laughs> is very near and dear to our hearts. <laughs> There's no way you're going to convert a Democrat into a Republican just by talking to them. They have to get a revelation of what's different. So this is the anger that we see in the media where the left fights the right and the right fights the left. And there is no give and no take. 
That's what James is dealing with. Okay, so he says in, in 18, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's who we are. He had the revelation of the born again experience. Verse 19, wherefore, my brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. Now, this is really good advice every day of the week. <laughs> but that's not who he's talking to. He's talking to Jews who know him and Jews who don't know him, the Lord Jesus Christ, that is. And so you have angry zealots throwing rocks. <laughs> and that's exactly what we see in the media. When we talk about identity, people get very protective. And they will fight you <laughs> to show you that you are wrong. Okay, so that's what we see in the media, the same kind of atmosphere where both parties think they're right. And so both parties get angry. And that's when he says, wait, wait, Jews, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Why? Because if you listen long enough, <laughs> you're going to hear the Lord speak to you. Verse 20, for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness or the justice of God. Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness, and I looked that up, fleshly, twisted, dirty. What do we see <laughs> on media? They twist everything. They slander. They're all of the quote-unquote flesh and the superfluity of naughtiness. You have any idea what the superfluity of naughtiness is? <laughs> it's extremely violent, malicious hatred. That sounds like politics. <laughs> so he says, put that stuff aside and receive with meekness the engrafted word. The engrafted word is Jesus. I know we usually think of this in terms of the word of God, but this is the engrafted word. This is the engrafted logos. That's the word, the logos. Jesus himself is engrafted, which is able to save your souls. Souls is everything. When they talk about the lives of many souls, you know, many souls were lost. That means their whole entire life. Jesus can save our entire life, our body, our spirit, our soul, our mind, will, and emotions, our finances, our relationships. God wants to save, save, heal, deliver, make whole, protect <laughs> every part of our life. That's what he's talking about. Jesus is the one who does all of that. Verse 22, but ye doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. So what is James talking about? We usually interpret this to mean the scriptures. Do the word. Always good advice. <laughs> if you know which part of the word to do. <laughs> However, I believe the word he's talking about in particular is the word he spoke of in verse 18. The truth that begat us of God by grace through faith apart from works. 118 again of his own will, God the Father begat us with the word, logos, of truth, Jesus. <laughs> it's Jesus and Jesus and more of Jesus, <laughs> that we should be the kind of first fruits of his creatures. We are the first ones born again. Someday this earth is going to get born again. But in the meantime, we are the testimony that the Spirit of God rebirths us into new life, eternal life. The word about Jesus and the voice of Jesus speaking to us by the Spirit is what brings forth faith in our hearts. I have Romans 10, 17 for you in the Passion Translation. 
Faith then is birthed in the heart that responds to God's anointed utterance of the anointed one. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word of God. The word of God is not the scriptures. The logos of Christos. Christ and him speaking. Even before we're born again, he speaks to us. But the word about him speaks to us. And it's the word about him that saves somebody. Not the word about Moses and the law and the law keeping. But the word about Christ, that is what brings faith. Faith rises in our heart. He gives us the faith (laughs) to use and apprehend all that he has done. So to be a doer of the word, a doer of the logos, is to actually believe the word of truth about Jesus and to, by faith, receive him and all of his gifts of salvation. Verse 23, for if any be a hearer of the word, which word? Well, in context, it's the word of truth, the word of Jesus, the word that saves us. If anyone be a hearer of the truth and not a doer, what are we supposed to do with that word? Believe it. (laughs) That's our doing. Our doing is believing. (laughs) And not a doer does not put his trust in Jesus and his finished works. That man, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goeth his way and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was. There are a couple of different ways to interpret these two scriptures, 23 and 24. One is with the idea of James talking to a believer. The other is James talking to an unbeliever. Now James was talking to both. (laughs) So that's why you can look at this two ways. If we think of it as pertaining to an unbelieving Jew who hears the truth regarding Jesus and the new birth, but doesn't respond. He is like a man who looks at himself in the mirror. Why do we look in the mirror? To see what's wrong. (laughs) we don't go in the mirror to see what's right (laughs) what's wrong with me do I need to fix something (laughs) he looks in the mirror and he sees what's wrong he sees his flaws but then he turns away and forgets all about them they're out of sight and out of mind and he no longer believes he needs the truth about Jesus so that's one way of looking at it but if we think of it as pertaining to a believing Jew or a believing Gentile someone who has already received the new birth in Christ. And that person hears more about the truth of who we are in Christ and how we are now born of God and that we have a brand new identity in Jesus. But he doesn't pay attention to this truth so that it persuades his heart. And then he looks at himself in a mirror and only sees his natural man. He can be persuaded that the natural man is his identity. And we always live out of what we believe we are. He would fall short of obtaining the wonderful life God wanted him to have. Are there consequences for sin in this world for believers? Absolutely. Paul tells us if you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption and destruction. Don't do it, he says. You won't like it. (laughs) Yes, there are consequences for sin. But what we do in the natural doesn't necessarily reveal our true identity. It's the saving of our souls. In my spirit, if I know who I really am, that I am born of God, I am holy, I am righteous, the more I believe that truth, the more I will live and walk out that truth in my life. 
If I believe that I am what God says I am, that begins to change our mind. He converts our mind to the truth of who he's created us to be. We are already all of those things in our spirit. And yes, he wants it to come out on the outside. <laughs> he doesn't want us to be secret agents. <laughs> he wants us to be living the truth of who we are and who Christ in us on purpose. It's so easy and everyone does it. We believe we are what we do. Someone who drinks too much calls himself an alcoholic. And what they have found about this is that people will continue to live out whatever you tell them they are. The medical community thought they were going to do alcoholics a big favor by telling them that they had a disease. But what they found is it worked in reverse. You see, a Christian says, if you've received Christ, that is not who you are. You are not bound to that sin. The power of Christ can break that addiction. You don't have to be an alcoholic your whole life. In fact, alcoholics examine us. What do they tell them? You'll forever be an alcoholic. That's not true. Because that's slavery. You see, that's what people don't get. They're like, well, if I'm not an alcoholic, I can go back to my old way of life. Who wants to go back to the old way of life? It's death, corruption, misery. It usually takes people losing everything in their life to come to the point where they're like, okay, Jesus, I need some help with this. <laughs> because they have an identity. I am what I do. I am what I'm addicted to. I have to live this way. And that's what they found. By telling people they had a lifelong disease that they could never be cured from, they fulfilled that prophecy. It makes them their identity. They don't even try to come out of the slavery and into the land of freedom in and through the Lord Jesus Christ because they have been told, this is what you are. This is how you're going to live. And Christ says, no, I can save every part of your life, body, soul, and spirit. You can be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You can be renewed in your body. You can be raised from the dead now in every area of our life. So it is the power of identity. We will live what we believe we are. If we believe we're failures, we're gonna live like a failure. If we believe we're more than conquerors, guess what? <laughs> Eventually, you're gonna see it come out in your life because you will be what you think you already are. Now in verse 25, <laughs> James contrasts all this bad news <laughs> of not apprehending what God has for us, <laughs> whether that's salvation or the converting of our entire lives. He says, I have some really good news. Verse 25. But whosoever looketh, and looketh doesn't mean glancing. This means to get down and get close to what you're looking at, to scrutinize it, to look at it closely, to discover what's in there. Whoever does this, whoever looketh into the perfect law of liberty and continueth therein, persevere, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. What is this perfect law of liberty? In fact, in the original Greek, he says it this way, the perfect law, the law of liberty. He didn't say the perfect law, the law of Moses. <laughs> no. The law of liberty is the truth that we have come out of every kind of slavery. We're not slaves to sin. We're not slaves to our flesh. We're not slaves to an old identity. There is a new law of liberty. And I love that he calls it a law. 
You see, we just call it the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, no, this is a law. You know what that means? It's unchangeable. You can't change God's laws. It's unbreakable. He said, this is the perfect law of liberty. It sets you free from the power of sin and death. It sets you free from trying to make yourself good enough. It sets you free from the old identity of who you used to be. He says, this is the perfect law. <laughs> and it brings freedom. This is the perfect law of liberty. It is the truth that salvation is a gift from beginning to end. And it's the truth that there is no work we can do, religious or otherwise, that can bring freedom from the power of the law of sin and death or provide us freedom from the old covenant demands. The perfect law of liberty, it's the perfect law. It's the truth that only faith in Christ and in his finished work can allow us to take hold of the new life, not just what's in us, but that we live it out. We live out our new identity as sons of God. We live out our new identity as more than conquerors in Christ. We live out our new identity of who he has created us to be. I like that James calls it the perfect law of liberty because it means the law of God is unbreakable. Jews knew that better than anybody. You can't break God's law. <laughs> it stands forever. He knows that no power can break the law of liberty found in our hearts. We have been made free to live in the freedom of the Holy Spirit. But we need to continue to look into this perfect law, the law of liberty, the law that can never be broken so that we don't forget who and what we really are in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you know what? We're human. We're going to fall down. We're going to make mistakes. We're going to misunderstand things. We're going to believe things that aren't true. That doesn't change who and what God has already created us to be. And now he says, he calls us to look into the new identity of Jesus Christ. You know what identity means, the word? Sameness. He says, look at Jesus and understand your sameness. <laughs> you are what he is. As he is at the right hand of the Father, so are we. Amen? Amen. Amen. <laughs> Father God, I thank you for your word and I thank you for your truth. I thank you, Lord, for all of the truth and revelation that you bring through your word. I thank you, Father God, that your apostles were so human. <laughs> and we can identify with their humanity. But Father God, I ask that you take us deeper and higher into the revelation of who you've created us to be. That in and through Jesus Christ, we have one new life, Jesus. And you want to live that life through us. You don't call us to live for you. You call us to live with you. And Father God, we thank you that you give us like a good master, everything we need. You've already provided for tomorrow. You've already provided for everything we'll ever have. We thank you, Father God, that as a good master and as a good father, you have already provided. And you only ask us to believe and receive it by faith. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.